to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the TV and filmmakers, the producers, the writers, the directors, the on-screen talent, the composers, costume designers, production designers, sound mixers, sound editors, film editors, you name it, we talk to them. And we're talking to some more today. Um, Joining us at the midpoint of the show today, uh, which this should be a fun, fun conversation, is Leslie Ann Thomas, writer-director of Honesty Weekend, which is currently out everywhere right now and available digitally, downloads, all the different platforms, pay-per-view, VOD. Um, We're going to find out, is honesty the best policy? It's... uh, it's a fun, it's an entertaining little film, uh, and it will garner more than a few laughs for you while having some really interesting themes running through the film. And a big note for all the General Hospital fans, you really want to check out Honesty Weekend because one of our favorite General Hospital nurses, Deani Michelle Collins, who plays Deanna on GH is one of the main stars in the Honesty Weekend Ensemble, and Diani is fabulous. So there, there's a heads up for all the, all the general hospital watchers out there. You want, you want to check out Honesty Weekend. But, you know, big doings this weekend. Friday night was the Hollywood Critics Association Awards. Promising Young Woman walked away with the lion's share uh, of little statuettes. Last night was Critics' Choice. Awards. Nomadland was the big winner there. Uh, Chloe Zhao's film, uh, as what it picked up for cinematography as well. Uh, so now we're in the midst of Academy Awards nomination submissions. And dare I even say it, you have until the Academy members, you have until the 10th of March to submit nominations. Let me just say Caleb Landry Jones and The Outpost. Um, All of my readers, listeners, you all know, for my money, The Outpost is still the best film of 2020. And, you know, so far, the critics uh, associations overlooked it, uh, much to my chagrin. Um, But Rod Lurie did an amazing, amazing job with that film, the true story of the Battle of Kamdash in Afghanistan. But Caleb Landry Jones is beyond stellar. He truly, truly is award worthy. So Caleb is my one big wish to see with an Oscar nomination this year. Um, Every year I have a few. As many of you, of my longtime listeners and readers know, but this year, my big one, my big hope is that all of the Academy voters that will end up, will end up seeing Caleb with a nomination um, for Best Supporting Actor uh, for The Outpost. So, let's move onward and upward. Um... Big film came out on Friday, getting mixed reviews, Coming to America, as in Coming Number 2, America. It is a sequel 
to the bombastically funny smash hit blockbuster coming to America, which is just 32 years ago, and it has just gained fans and fame over the decades. And finally, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall were like, yep, let's make a sequel. The time was right. Enough time had passed. We've got new generations. And boy, oh boy, what a sequel they have delivered. I am in love with Coming to America, the sequel. Uh, and be, so I don't forget, you must watch through the entire credits. Post-credits Easter egg, folks, and it's funny. Um, I laugh my ass off through the entire film. There's heart, there's humor, there's laugh-out-loud funny, as you would expect from Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall. But then you throw Wesley Snipes into the mix, and I can't remember last time I saw Wesley Snipes have this much fun. He is hilarious as he goes toe-to-toe as a gen- as the leader of a rival nation to Zamunda. Uh, he's amazing. And, we all, of course, we bring in Leslie Jones this time, and I'll see Leslie Jones in anything. Um, I'm waiting for Project Runway to get back into the swing just because it's so fun reading and listening to Leslie live tweet during Project Runway. Uh, No holds barred. And there's no holds barred with her character in Coming to America. Time has passed in the world of Zamunda. And King Joffy Joffer is not well. And he does pass, as we all know. It's not a spoiler to say that. There is an incredible funeral sequence <laughs> with Morgan Freeman moderating the, the funeral. Um, we should all be so lucky to have a funeral sequence with Morgan Freeman uh, serving, presiding over, over it. But, of course, with the passing of Joffy Joffer, then Prince Akeem now becomes King Akeem. He has long been happily married to his love, Lisa. Um, Lisa McDowell. They have three beautiful daughters. And now we find out Akeem has a son from a one-night stand that he doesn't remember. That, of course, was at the hands of his partner in crime and bestie, Semi, which is played by Arsenio Hall. Uh... And this is all about, instead, we have Akeem and Semi going back to Queens to find the son, and then the son and his mama, uh, and the rest of his family end up in Zamunda. There are some great themes at play in the film. Um, in addition to the touchstones and the plot points from, and the return of the entire original cast but for Madge Sinclair who played the queen who since who passed away everything is addressed not only in the context of 1988 but then put under the lens of 2021 um written by Barry Blaustein, David Sheffield, uh Kenya Barris and directed by Craig Brewer there's a delicate balancing act but they walk the tightrope and they do it successfully i had the chance to speak with 
Craig Brewer in this exclusive interview the other week, which I've held under wraps until today, as I am dying here choking, and Pam sitting in the booth laughing at me. Um, so without any further ado, let me let you listen to my exclusive interview with Craig Brewer talking about coming to America, the ins and outs, the cinematography, uh, and of course, next year's Oscar winner... Ruth Carter, best costume design. I'm calling it right now because you think what she did with Black Panther was fabulous? You think what she did setting the tone and designing for Yellowstone on TV is fabulous? You ain't seen nothing yet until you see what she has done for coming to America. Um, the DP on the cinematographer is Jody Williams. Jody Williams is brilliant as a cinematographer and his pairing with Craig Brewer, because they also worked together on empire on the TV series empire, their collaborative spirit translates so well here. Uh, and of course I love, I love the fact they were shooting Panavision, um, millennium DXL and DXL twos, uh, for coming to America. So without any further ado, my exclusive interview with director Craig Brewer. Well, hello, Craig. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I am so happy to be talking to you again. It's been a decade. Footloose was the last time yeah. we talked. Yeah. What's our What's our thing with uh, with eighties uh, re re revisiting the eighties theme? We have good taste. <laughs> good answer. That's. I gotta tell you, I am as I was as I was watching Coming to America. Your version here, I couldn't help but think of my dad who loved the original so much. And he lived in Philly, and every time it would be on TV, he would call me on the phone and talk through every comedy routine in the film. He loved it so much. As I'm watching this film, all I could think of is how much he would love this one even more. Oh, good. Well, it's it's interesting you bring that up because my father was the same way. He loved it, and uh, and I, in in a way, I I I wanted to kind of tap into that feeling that you you probably have with your dad and I had with mine. You know, there were there, there's actually moments in the movie that I wanted to be a little emotional because yeah. I think that that we you know we share a similar love of this movie that that tends to be handed down from generation to generation like like a like a like a family tradition well and the and the film is very much a family tradition too as we go from king joffy joffer to to akeem with the passing of the reins and now the ritual of eldest daughter mika wants wants the kingdom when akeem retires or dies and she can't have it. So it is this whole generational thing that translates for a generational experience for the audience. And that's the benefit that I think that we have from the fact that there hasn't been a sequel to Coming to America for more than 30 years. Yeah. If we had a sequel that came out the, you know, two years after the first one did, we wouldn't be able to explore those kinds of themes. But now... Uh, just like you said, like I mean, I, I was I was a, a teenager when I saw the first movie, and now it's 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 different now that I'm I'm a father of two teenagers, and and you get to explore these very relatable human themes 
of uh, of being a parent, of, of needing to listen to your children and, and maybe putting away customs that keep people down instead of building them up. And, and that's a recurring theme between the two movies. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and our hope was that we, that we could, um, you know, uh, stay within that theme, but but have some new characters for people to enjoy in this one. And you absolutely succeed with it, Craig, on every level. And I have well, to, and I have to say, I think perhaps the most emotional moment in the entire film comes at the hour twenty three mark when you got Cleo giving fa- fatherly advice to Akeem, and he brings up, you know, what would the Queen have said. I'm so glad you bring that up. It's my favorite moment. Oh, my God. I cried a bucket of tears. I'm tearing up now just thinking about it. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up. I'm really glad you brought that up because it, it, I, I, that's a scene that I wrote, um, and uh, and I, I, I've had it in my life. You know, my father died when he was 49, and I am now 49. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, I, I grew very close with my father-in-law. And there have been times where we've had these kinds of talks about like, well, what do you think my dad would think? And, and then it hit me. I was like, you know, but you know, so much of what happens in the first movie is about like the, the kind of the sins of the father, you know, Mm -hmm. the father is the one who's saying, you've got to do this, you got to do that. And where does the voice of reason and coming to America come? It comes through two women. It comes from Lisa being, you know, very, uh, very much her own woman with mm-hmm. her own mind, and 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 she makes her own choices. But then it really is the queen. It's the queen saying, "Do you love her? Then go to her." And 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 she tells her husband like to shut up. And yeah. Aren't you the king? And and she brings reason to all of this. So so really, in a world that's pretty patriarchal and misogynistic, such as the Munda, really it's it's women in these two movies that uh, that uh, change things and 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 really and really make the way for a new world absolutely and one thing i have to say sherry headley this go round she knocks it out of the park with an expanded role and an expanded voice she is phenomenal and then you pit her and leslie jones together it's a free-for-all of fun uh, i i love shari in this movie i think that you know, uh, I know that everybody everybody has their own decisions as to, you know, uh, you know why they do movies or don't do movies. But after watching Shari in this movie and, and seeing the performance that she gives, I just want to see more of her. She's, yeah. first of all, just as beautiful as she was back 30, 30 or more years uh, ago. But she's so good in the subtleties of this movie with comedy and with drama. Mm-hmm that uh, I, I, I'm so proud of her and, and so happy for her. You know, that's something that strikes me with this film, Craig, is the balance that you have with heartfelt drama and comedy and fought, walking that line. You could have gone, the script could have gone, and then you could have taken it as a director into a total, I don't know, even a parody or a mimicry of the first film. You don't. You pay great homage to everything in the first film, and you build upon it here. But it's a fine line where you could have easily gone either way. And well, I'm curious I, I about that, that okay. about structuring that, how you managed to do that. Well, I think that, you know, P 
people, when they talk about coming to America, are emotional. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they can talk about what they find funny in it all day long. They can quote funny lines from it. But the reality is, is that people are uh, touched by the movie, and, mm-hmm. and they're touched in ways that sometimes we don't even know. I, I tell this story about, you know, Tyrese Gibson came by the set one day, um, and he's a, he's a friend of mine, you know, um, we, we both are, you know, we call ourselves the John Singleton family, you know, uh, <laughs> that, that, you know, the, uh, J- John gave me my start and he gave Tyrese his start. And, uh, and he's also a good friend of Ruth Carter. And, and he came by the set one day and I knew how much coming to America meant to him. And I, and I brought him into the, the, the study and I said, put your hand out, man. And I put the original crown that James Earl <gasps> Jones wears in the movie in his hands. And to see Tyrese look at this crown, and he was emotional. He was like, you don't understand what this movie meant to me growing up in my neighborhood, to see black royalty, to see a world that I I, I did not see around me. And so I understand that we've got to entertain. I understand that we have to have humor, and I knew that we were going to have that. But um, I just felt like if we were going to make Coming to America, we had to recognize that there had to be some soul. There had to be some some human moments in this because, uh, you know, comedy can fade mm-hmm. and you, you need to root for everybody in this movie. Well, what you also do is you really elevate this for the times of the 21st century in terms of Mika's character and Sherry's ca- character of Queen Lisa and the the now prominence, more prominence of women in this film and the importance. The first real voice we had in the original was the queen, was the extraordinary Madge Sinclair. But here we now get Lisa's voice. We get Mika's voice. We get the two younger daughters who are just both pistols, man. They are great. And I could watch a whole movie with just the daughters. Oh, my God. That that should be the next film. There you go. Three three daughters in Zamunda, um, yep. and Leslie Jones, who has the strength of the women, particularly in these times, following you know the initial explosion of Me Too, and still the battle for workplace equality and and voice, just shines. Really I'm elevated. Really, I'm really happy about that because it was it was something that was important to us, and and it, and it came out of, you know, I, I think that that one reason why we wanted to highlight this is because, you know, there are some things from the original movie that obviously probably couldn't fly today, you know, right. and 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 we looked at kind of Zamunda as being a place that was that was a little bit, you know, a little bit patriarchal, a little bit misogynistic, and. And we thought, like, well, you know, um, it's time to burst that bubble. And, and who better to burst that bubble than Leslie Jones? <laughs> and, and, and what I love about what Leslie brought to the character, and she really brought this. This was not really a part of it, but it's something that she added with her nuances. As much as she can say inappropriate things, she's kind of delightfully loving. She, she loves her son. Uh, she loves Lisa. Mm-hmm. And she made a baby with her husband. <laughs> yeah. It, there's there's something about her that's kind of like look let's let's just all be okay with each other can we just move forward and and have a good life and 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 she brought that like that wasn't mm-hmm. so much in the script that was Leslie and I really have to give it to her I I just I just think she just knocks it out of the park as well here 
I have to ask you, though, about these incredible production values. You've got Jody as your cinematographer, so you bring that great uh, rapport and camaraderie that you have with him on Empire. You've got Ruth, who... I'm talking Oscar. Her costuming here is better than what she did for Black Panther. I I, I think she's a, a national treasure. Oh my really. God! Um, and and then you've got uh, Jermaine. Uh, you've got uh, your production design. You've got Jeff Sage's production uh, Jeffrey design. Sage, who did? Uh, who I think? <clears throat> you know, we no one ever really talks so much about about Jeff's contribution. Oh. And and let me just tell you, he had the hardest job. He had the hardest job because he had to commit first. And so much of what this job was was like, how much do we make it like the original and how much do we bend into a new world of Zamunda? Right. And, uh, and the problem with production design is it's like the first step. Like you've got to start building way early. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think he did a marvelous job of incorporating what the what the movie used to, you know, the, the aesthetic of the original movie, but then updating it into a new royal palace and, and, and world. I, I really can't say enough about it. He did a fantastic job. Oh, the production design is exemplary. And, you know, then you add Ruth's costuming on that. And then you give this all to Jody to lens. And I have to say, what you and Jody do with your visual tonal bandwidth, you keep everything light, bright, You've got great color saturation. Interesting is that you really avoid a lot of wide, extreme wide shots or, uh, you know, panavistic shots. And you keep everything more in an, a slightly expanded two shot, like an intimate family scale. So that it lets yeah. us see all of Jeff's great production design detail and still and get that family feel. And it's a really interesting visual construct that you and Jody have. Yeah, I, I can't say enough for the time that, you know, I mean, Jody spent seven seasons, I believe, on uh, on Empire. But the two seasons that I was on Empire, I think I, I feel like I went to film school for the first time. Mm -hmm. And and when, you know, the great thing about, about Empire is that, you know, we had to have all of this production value stay at a standard that, that had been maintained over, over the seven seasons. But you also had to do all these music numbers and all these big, you know, uh, production set pieces. But you had to do it in eight days. You know, you, 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 you know, you were still moving at a television pace. So he was like my first call I, I, after, you know, uh, after Ruth signed on, I was like, okay, I got to go get Jody because I don't know how he survived this movie. Not to mention, I know that he knows how to, you know, how to light these, these, these sets, how to, how to, how to really bring out, um, you know, uh, the, the, the costume detail. Mm -hmm. and, and it, I, I, I trust him wholeheartedly and, and love him as a friend. Oh, his work is just exemplary, exemplary, Craig. I mean, I, I can see the actual weave of the fabric in Ruth's costuming and the individual detail of all the, the rows of tiny little shells that make up the entire lapel border on a, on a ceremonial robe. Just the what he captures is stunning. Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And the dance number, the musical number, to bring the camera down from being up on what I'm, I'm guessing may have been a 50-foot techno, 
but to bring it down to eye level. So we're looking into the faces of the of the dancers and of yeah. the tribal dance. Absolutely impeccably done. Oh, thank you. And then and then it's funny because you know we 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 always have those days where they ask about cranes, and I was like, you know, if we're gonna if we're gonna use a crane, then let's use it, damn it, mm-hmm. let's give it some some movement to it. But uh, you know, I don't want to. Uh, and, and I and I have to say that's what I get from Landis. Like there's a there's a shot in 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 coming to America that I've I've duplicated in other movies and TV that I've done where I call it the coming to America shot. And all it is is just a, a, a female dancer in that opening uh, dance routine that that Paula Abdul did, where where this mass of people in a in a, in a wide shot are, are are dancing towards you. But then this woman comes up into the foreground and she's in a close-up and she looks right into the lens mm-hmm. and it's just such a dynamic moment and uh and so we we kind of did our own nod to that in our own way with the with the technocrane but you're, you're you're right i mean i think it's our days on empire we like to kind of uh we kind of like to keep things terrestrial uh, hey you know but i love technocranes you know that's what i love about yeah. that's what i love about <laughs> Dion taylor Dion cannot make a film without a technocrane <laughs> Right, right. Well, I know that Madeline's got to move you along here, but I've got to quickly ask you, Craig. Sure. You know, what did you, what did you take away from the experience of, you know, you, you go from Footloose revisiting a classic. Here you revisit a classic again. What did you as a filmmaker take away from this project that you'll now take with you into future projects and hopefully another 80s film that gets revisited <laughs> well i mean i think that uh you know there's a lot of things that you can learn from a production but then there's like i think that if i were to choose the one thing that i learned from this experience that took us not only through production but also took us through post-production that happened during COVID. Mm-hmm. You know, where we were having to learn how to edit without any of us being in the same room, where we had to uh, learn how to how to mix a movie without even being in the same room, um, but but also just the the how do you test a movie and find out where comedy works and doesn't work when it's when you can't even bring a bunch of people in the same room, and I think that what I learned if I were to if I were to pick like one thing personally is patience and trust in the system um i uh i could easily spin out like i probably have done in my other uh earlier films where i come home at night and i would just go to bed stressed and i would see the movie kind of rearranging itself like a capra like calendar in my head and going like oh is that the right sequence maybe i should do it this way and waking up with that same kind of stress and i think that I don't know if it's just maturity. I don't know if it's because I've done this before with other movies like, like Footloose that meant a lot to a lot of people, but there, there was something about this process that I said, hey, don't beat up your, on yourself that much. Um, take, take the time you need. It's going to reveal itself. The movie's tone is going to land at the right place. Have some trust, not only in yourself, but in your collaborators. Um, and, 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 and allow yourself some peace. <laughs> and I think that's the biggest lesson that I learned from coming to America. Well, you have done an amazing job, and I have to watch it again and again. This will now be one of, added to my guilty pleasure collection. 
Oh, good, good. That's good to hear. It, well, thank you. Fabulous, Craig. Thank you so, so much. I can't wait for the next one. Oh, thank you. And that was my exclusive with Craig Brewer talking about coming to America. And, you know, we didn't get into uh, into delve deep into the casting. It's very hard to fit a lot of stuff in in under 20 minutes, let me tell you. Uh, but the touchstones that I quickly mentioned at the top um, that hearken to the, the original film, the 1988 film, we still have, they are brought forward here. You know, of course, everybody cracked up with seeing Ralph Bellamy and Donna Amici in the first Coming to America after having played with Eddie Murphy in Trading Places. And that was a hoot and a holler. Well, the Duke and Duke brothers are still are still coming to America. Um, there's a, a wonderful nod to them in this film. There's also, many of you may not remember or know, the original voice of CNN was James Earl Jones. Um, and within Coming to America, there is a news station, ZNN, for global news. And of course, a nice little a nice little nod there. James Earl Jones does the voice of ZNN. Uh, in addition to being King Joffy Joffer, um, so that's a that was a nice surprise to see that. Lots of fun cameos pop up. Trevor Noah is hilarious in the film, and I have to say, two of the great standouts here. Um, well, actually, three of them. You've got Kiki Lane as Akeem and Lisa's eldest daughter, Mika, whose big frustration is she's been training. She wants to be ruler of Zamunda when Akeem is gone, but that's always the first male heir. So it's nice today on International Women's Day that we have a film out there that is going to buck the system and have somebody fighting for you know, a female ruler of this patriarchal society. Uh, Kiki Lane is outstanding. And then as the other two daughters of Akeem and Lisa, you've got Akili Love is the youngest one, Tanashi. She, she is a spitfire. And then making her screen debut, Eddie Murphy's daughter, Bella, plays the brainy middle daughter, Oma. And she is wonderful. I can't wait to see what comes next for Bella. I really hope we see her get expanded roles and because she's wonderful in this film. Absolutely wonderful. And of course, we talk about touchstones. We talk about old characters coming back. Of course, you've got Louis Anderson. We've got um, John Amos back as Cleo McDowell, who has now opened the first McDowells in Zamunda. Uh, and, of course, y'all remember little baby Baybar the elephant. Baybar is back 32 years later, but Baybar is not little anymore. Uh, but all these wonderful things. And it is all embraced with comedy, with laughter, with love, with heart. And many people may disagree and say, oh, it feels dated. It, laughter is, not, is never dated. 
heart is never dated. And this film just, it takes the original, it amps it up for the 21st century, throws in some great themes um, that really advance women uh, within the film, within the global spectrum, as seen through the eyes of Zamunda. It's just, I've seen it twice already. I will see it again. Um, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Judge for yourself. See it. Amazon Prime. It is there and it is well worth whatever you spend to see it. So that is my, that's my take on Coming to America and Craig Brewer. And now we're going to switch gears. And we're going to find out from Leslie Ann Thomas if honesty really is the best policy. Hi, Leslie. Hi, how are you? I'm fine. Welcome, welcome to Behind the Lens. How are you doing? Oh, good. I'm good. I'm feeling feeling honest. Feeling honest. To talk about Honesty Weekend. Honesty Weekend. <laughs> Honesty Weekend is it's a movie about a couple whose marriage is in a little bit of trouble. They go to a therapist. The therapist prescribes a weekend of total honesty. Except it's the same weekend they're going out of town with friends. So, it's a setup for uh, some revelations and some comedy. Well, there's a lot of comedy that comes. And I have to say, the comedy really comes because of your casting. Because it, it, what really sells the best comedic moments in this film are the performances. Um, because of the physical comedy that comes along with it. And I think one of the mo two of the most outstanding are uh, Pete Plazic and uh, Adam Bartley. The two of them are just, their comedy just never falls flat. And it's because of their performance and the energy and the effortless candor. Honesty. Uh, shall we say, that comes into play. And I love watching the two of them on screen. But then they also give us the tragic side. So we see heartfelt grief and loss and questioning and about, about love and about relationships. And it's to watch them go to the extremes, I think, it are two of the most outstanding performances in the film. Well, thank you. I, those guys are amazing. Um, I got really lucky with the casting. I, it, it's the, the cast is uh, from start to finish. They all bring it. Um, and just being together with those guys when they were doing their thing, <laughs> we were all cracking up behind that camera. You know, how do you, when you have comedy like that unfolding, and especially with Pete and his character of Nate, he is very physical in his expressiveness and comedy. He's jumping over chairs. He's climbing over people. Um, and, of course, I'm assuming he did his own butt work in this film. <laughs> you know, that's always important. You know, that's Mel Gibson's fault. Mel started all this years ago. About, With you know. stand-in butt? Yes. Do you have a stand-in butt or not a stand-in butt? And... To, para to paraphrase Julie Roberts' character in Notting Hill, no, Mel does his own ass work. Why would, 
why would you want a double when you have an ass like that? <laughs> you know, almost as good as, as Chris Evans as Captain America's ass. So, you know, this these are important things in films now. Uh, very important. <laughs> I, I, I just busted a gut laughing uh, with that one scene, uh, the way Pete pulled that off. And it was, it was hilarious. Absolutely. As did hilarious. everyone in the room. <laughs> How do you even get through shooting scenes like that? That just, did you actually script that or was this an improv? Oh, yeah, it was scripted. I had to negotiate a nudity writer. It was the whole thing. Oh, my God. Oh, my uh, God. Well, you know, what, um, once you get the idea for this story and you get... I a, got the idea. I wanted to do a producible ensemble comedy. Mm-hmm. So I knew that the idea had to be pretty tight. It had to be producible in, in a, you know, a few locations with a really good cast. Um, and then the, the nugget of it came from I went to a, a um, dinner party with friends, and the, the couple had had a fight right before everyone came over. <laughs> and so they were, like, miserable the whole time, and everyone else was really uncomfortable, but I was dying laughing. I thought it was hilarious, and I thought, what if you take a couple having an having issues and you kind of put them with their friends and trap them in a place for the weekend. <laughs> well, I, the setup is phenomenal. Um, and the way that you have the script, cons- the script constructed is before we realize about this weekend, we meet our, our quote unquote, our lead couple of Ada and John in a psychiatrist in, in their therapist's office, their counselor's office. And Ada has to record, video record their counseling session because she is a wannabe documentary filmmaker. And that immediately sets the stage. And here again, it, you're casting. You've got Evan Watkins as John. And his, fa- he, his face is rubber because he gets some of the greatest looks on his face sitting there as the camera's being set up, as she's primping herself so she looks good on camera in the therapist's office. (laughs) And you see the absurdity, and the whole time you're thinking, now we know why they're in a therapist's office, but even more interesting is why the hell is he with her? Uh, So, you know, you and then you lead us in, and this is where all the rest of your ensemble comes into play. And I have to wonder how challenging casting was because you really need the right personalities because you've got these guys that have been best friends for since college, high school. Um, so they've got to have this great camaraderie. You've got wives in there. You have an interloper uh, mm-hmm. who shows up, bad girl Delaney. Um, who's been besties with John since they were in fifth grade. But all of these chemistries have to work, so we get that core relationship that these guys are all friends, and therefore everybody else can get drug into this honesty thing 
Because allegedly everybody's been honest with each other all these years. Don't we all say that? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, the casting was key. The casting was everything to this film. Because the actors had to carry it, and they had to make you believe that they had long-time relationships, as you said. So I went for people that were truthful and real and relatable and likable. Mm-hmm. And the cast got together before we shot. They all went out for drinks. They hung out. Um, John and Ada, uh, the actors playing John and Ada, Evan and Natalie, went to the mall together shopping <laughs> as a couple um, so that they could, like, hang out and, and bitch at each other, basically. Um, but they, But getting them all together in a room was where the magic happened because I just let them be free and i knew they were good mm-hmm. yeah they they really play so well as a couple um you believe that they've been a couple for a long time you believe that he rolls his eyes at 90 percent of what she says um you believe that she is just so disappointed about everything that he does um they this is this does not feel like a performance. It feels like <laughs> it feels very authentic. Uh, and that's a testament to them. And then you bring in your other charming, sweet couple of, of Stella and Harry, played beautifully by Adam Bartley and Diani Michelle Collins. And as I, I said at the top of the show today, all the General Hospital fans out there, because... They love, love Diani's character on General Hospital of, of Nurse Deanna. So if they want to see more of Diani, they need to see this film because she's totally different uh, oh, she, yeah. uh, than what they're used to seeing. And she's so good. But the charm between Diani and Adam, Estella and Harry, oh, my God. It is so sweet. Yeah, they were so cute, weren't they? Oh, my God. Gosh, uh, that that's like, oh, the love and the happiness and the joy. But they have an honesty issue as well about certain things. Um, and I, I love how all of this comes up so naturally in the course of a weekend. Uh, these things that have, have bubbled below surfaces are suddenly come to the top as so often the truth does. And then it smacks you in the face, and you've got to figure out how to deal with it. Um, I'm curious, when you were writing, did you ever feel boxed into a corner about how you're going to get people out of some of the truths that are revealed? Ooh, that's a great question. Um, I think that as the truths were being revealed, I didn't feel boxed in, but I definitely felt like I had to serve them. Mm-hmm. You know, like I couldn't dance around it. I couldn't sweep it under the rug. Once some of the main truths of the characters came out, I, they had to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. And the third act really gets interesting because we have the char- our interloper Delaney, beautifully played by Sabina Gadecki, and Susan Walters shows up. And we'd never see Susan Walters enough anymore. I know, uh, I love her. Oh, my God. 
Um, and she shows up as John's mother, Naomi. So the third act gets really dicey and gets actually gets very intense. Um, and it, it makes you wonder, okay, how is the, tr especially when flashbacks, recent flashbacks um, appear as to what acts certain people have done. We're not going to give away any spoilers, but there, there are some secrets that come out. Uh, and one of which does not have a happy ending at all. Yeah. And that's, always, that's a surprise be, with a film like this because you think everything's going to get tied up with a neat little bow. And it doesn't. That's how life is, though, isn't it? Sadly, yes. <laughs> Sadly. Uh, you know, but it's not, I mean, it's not, it's not dour. It's no. Not, it's, just, it's just real. Yep. And there is a little bit of hope there. Thanks to the character, you know, thanks to Nate. Um, what is what is down actually could be, could not be. It could, it could turn around in the future. But one of the things that you do so beautifully here, working with your cinematographer, with Laurent Bassett, you keep this whole film light and bright. And you also keep it very intimate. And I think that's aided by the, by the physical construct of the different rooms at this house that everybody, that everybody is at for the weekend. What was your collaboration with Laurent like in developing your visual tone? Uh, we sat down together. We know each other and have known each other for a long time. We sat down with the script. We went to the location. We mapped out sort of the tone of every scene and the tone of every character, the visual mm -hmm. tone. And then we used that as a map throughout shooting. Um, so, for example, Delaney is a mess, and she's always handheld. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, Stella's pretty stable, so we kept the camera pretty stable for her. We knew that there was a lot of warmth and love and history with the characters, so we wanted to keep the look warm and inviting and mm -hmm. comfortable. Um, and we wanted to, the location was beautiful, so we wanted to incorporate that as well. That location is gorgeous. Where did you shoot this film? At, we shot it at a house in Topanga Canyon. Wow. And it, was, it ended up being like a little mini movie rant because the house had multiple areas, and we could shoot all over it. Mm -hmm. Now, did you shoot within the actual rooms in the house? You didn't have to go build anything out on a soundstage? No, no, no. We were all in this house in Topanga. Wow. Now, because some of those rooms, some look medium-large in size, but others do not, did that logistically present a problem for you and Laurent with blocking and for, with staging? See, the good thing is, Laurent and I both have a background in, in docuseries. Mm -hmm. So we shoot Fast and Furious in existing <laughs> locations. Um, and Laurent shoots be below deck for Bravo, so he shoots on boats. <laughs> um, so we had no problem with it, really. We just worked within what was available. If a scene was intimate in a smaller room, we had a very small footprint of crew. Mm -hmm. um, 
we made it work. Wow. And then, of course, it all goes into the hands of your editor. And I have to say, the editing is crisp. It's clean. And I like the transitions as we go into the past, you know, for, for, you know, dreams, flashbacks, or dreams of what I want. Uh, and really cleanly done. Thank you. I'm so happy that you said that. Hyun Chang is my editor, my friend. Um, she's amazing. She's an artist, um, and, and it comes out in her work. Um, I told her, originally we put the film all together, and then I, it was way too linear and way too literal. Mm-hmm. And I just said, here, take it and mess it all up, please. And I literally just let her have her way with it for three weeks. <laughs> and, um, and she came back, and we kept a chunk of what she'd done, and we smoothed out some other stuff and, you know, clarified. Um, but that's her genius. Wow. Well, I'm a fan of Hyun's work editing anyway, thanks to Kids Baking Championship. Uh, oh yay! <laughs> I I am I am addicted now. Oh, my sound engineer Pam is sitting in the in the booth and she's smiling and nodding her head. She's a big fan of the kids baking as well. Uh, if you know kids baking, do you know macaron stackaron? Yes. Where the kids all burst into tears because they had to stack macarons. Yes. And Pam's okay. in there nodding her head big up and down. Yes, yes, yes. And she added the operatic music, and she made me cry and laugh at the same time. And I'm like, this is it. We have to do something together. Oh, my God. Yeah, I am a big fan of Hyun's work. And, I mean, even going back, all this reality TV that she's done, Big Brother, Amazing Race. And that's, especially something like Big Brother, it's almost custom-tailored that training ground for a film like Honesty Weekend. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, so I'm not surprised that he on that you have he on editing uh, Honesty Weekend. And you know, I'm curious, Leslie, because you come out of producing yeah, Holiday Baking Championships, Next Iron Chef, Star Food Network, Star Kids. You come how does that is there a big learning curve? Is there any kind of jump or or transition from doing uh, shows like that to to directing a film like uh, Honesty Weekend? I mean, it's a completely different format. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like a lot of the skills translate. I have to work with talent. I have to get what I need on camera. I have to get the story told. I have to be, you know, I have to understand all the production parameters. So all of that translates. Um, I'm also a playwright, mm-hmm. and I've been involved in a lot of productions. Um, and so I think it's it's utilizing, you know, my voice uh, as a writer, my voice as a director, which I don't always get to do on the baking shows. <laughs> i got to do what the network wants. Um, but also using all those skills from having produced those shows over the years. Working mm-hmm. with people and getting the best out of them, that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. What made Honesty Weekend the right film for you to jump into the narrative feature director's chair? Mm, I think because it is a film that people will relate to. That was important to me. I wanted to do something, I wanted to create a, a, a 
title that was on a streaming service that when you click on it and you commit 90 minutes of your time, that you walk away having laughed, having been moved, and maybe think a little bit about yourself. And that was my intention. Well, I ha- I hate so, I hate to say it, but a 90-minute commitment is nothing compared to your other projects because when you get holiday baking or uh, you know the the kids baking things, you know, hey, you're you're binging that for 6-7 hours. Yeah. It's true. <laughs> so 90 minutes is nothing. <laughs> that that's a that is a piece of cake pun intended. Uh, so, oh, uh, now I think I j- think you did a wonderful job. Was the, what was uh, what was the most challenging aspect of bringing Honesty Weekend to life? What was the most challenging aspect? Yeah, uh, I think it was we were not fully cast up until a few days before we were going to shoot, <laughs> and I had a mini breakdown. And I just needed the final pieces to come together. And so that was really the most nerve-wracking part of the whole thing. Oh, my God. Now, what was the timeline for this one? Were you doing any part of this during COVID? No, uh, we shot pre-COVID. And all of your posts, your editing, everything was done pre? All the, all the, we shot it pre-COVID. We posted it to be ready um, to go to market in March of 2020. <laughs> Uh-oh. 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 Yeah, well, um, we all know what happened then. <laughs> yeah, so that was the timeline. How surprised are you um, that even with COVID that you got a pickup and the film is already, it's now out on every platform imaginable? It's on every platform imaginable. I mean, the good news is we had offers from several distributors, Mm -hmm. um, so that was good. Uh, So I'm happy that we're out. I'm happy that Vision Films is um, promoting it, and anyone can see it anywhere they want. They sure can. I was double-checking all the platforms this morning before I came into the studio, and it's like, yep, it's here, it's here, it's here, it's here, and... It is, it's well worth, it's an escape without being a total escape. As you said, it, it does. It makes you sit there and you think about the whole idea of honesty and the price tag that can come with it from withholding and then from disclosing. And that's something you handle very delicately in the film. And you show us both sides of the coin, you know, is it better to tell to be totally honest about everything, or should you hold back a little bit? Yeah, and That's one of the central questions: What is kindness? Is it just blurting everything out, or is it maybe being judicious about how you use honesty? Yeah, and and but you handle that so delicately, and you don't jam anything in anyone's face. You really and you really let the audience absorb and figure out for themselves how they you. you know how they see it, and I am sure with a film like this, with a subject matter like this, 
I know inclinations for a lot of screenwriters would be to put the, you know, give it a definitive ending, a definitive point of view. And you don't. You let the audience decide. And I really appreciate that, and I like that. And it also helps keep the film on that lighter tone on the whole, um, which is just mirrored by the beautiful cinematography. I got. I, <laughs> I just love what Laurent did uh, with that. I do too. With that so gor- good. Oh, you know, and not just the gorgeous location, but the interiors of the house, the lighting in the house. Um, it's fabulous. And then you ice everything with your score. How, oh my god! I love how, the music. The music is great. How difficult was it? You've got two composers. You got Mandy Hoffman, Jameson Hollister. What were your discussions with them like for the kind of scoring you wanted for this film? I mean, first of all, the fact that I landed Mandy was huge because I was a massive fan of hers from The Lovers mm-hmm. and um, from I Love Dick on Amazon. Mm-hmm. And I was like, who is this composer? And I tracked her down and I begged her to do my movie. <laughs> and... Um, and then Jameson was helping her out because she was also working on another series at the time. Mm-hmm. And Jameson just did Good Lord Bird, so he's amazing too. Um, the conversation was the tone of, it's that difficult tone where you can do comedy and you can make people laugh, laugh and sort of bring an air to a scene. Mm-hmm. But also there's pathos. Mm-hmm. And... And some goofiness and some sexiness, and I wanted all of it. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a laundry list to give a composer. Yes, I want all of this. <laughs> yeah, it was a lot of back and forth and a lot of trial and error. And then when Mandy got the first, um, the cue when they were walking up to the office building at the beginning of the movie to go to their therapist, I was like, oh, that's it. Stay mm-hmm. right in that zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you never get the the score. The music never gets too heavy. It also never goes into total frivolity. Yeah. So you have nothing that's out of kilter in this film, Leslie. Everything is within modulated parameters so that it's cohesive and synergistic. And I, awesome. and I really like that about this film. Uh, and, of course, as Annie will tell you, I am being brutally honest. And if it sucked, I would tell you. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now, what did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker, as a director, a writer-director, that you will now take forward into future films, which I hope we're going to see more of from you? hope so too. Uh, what did I learn? I learned to trust myself. I learned that if I have the spine of the story and I cast amazing actors, that we can do anything. Um, and and I and I I went into it with a lot of trust because I come. There's a lot of trust in my work at Food Network mm-hmm. um, because I become really close with the people that I work with, and you can see it in those shows. Um, people get to express themselves. They're safe. And so I brought a lot of that into this film. I set the actors up to succeed 
And I just want to do more of that. I want to be able to go into a situation where I, I know the story is strong, I know the script is strong, and then now let's play. Mm-hmm. Well, you certainly played, and you played very well with Honesty Weekend. I got to tell you. And if this if this is the kind of work that comes from people going beyond the Food Network, I'm all for it. Because I know Laurent also he did a full season of Bar Rescue. Oh my God, I didn't even know that. Oh yes, indeed. I, that's I get addicted to Bar Rescue. I I can't start watching it because then I cannot stop. Because I have friends who own bars, and I, it's like, oh, my God, if they ever do anything like this, I'll kill them. Uh, <laughs> well, now you know all the things not to do. That's just it. That's And one of my best friends, she owns a bar, and, yes, yeah, she, she swears by Bar Rescue for that very reason. Um, it, it tells her what not to do. But, yeah, so I was familiar with Lauren, uh, Laurent's work uh, as well coming into this into this but this seems to be the answer everybody work on the food network and then work (laughs) with leslie and do a narrative feature there you go i think that works ah leslie this has been so much fun having you on the show today i hope you get back to work and make something so you can come back on i hope so too thank you so much and thank you for really understanding and getting the movie it means a lot oh I, I just love it. And again, everybody can see it on every platform there is. <laughs> it's yeah, out go there. Yeah, Honesty Weekend. Oh, thank you, Leslie. Bye-bye. Right, thank you, Debbie. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Leslie Ann Thomas, writer-director of Honesty Weekend. Uh, and yes, my honest evaluation is it's well worth your time. See it. See Coming to America. See Honesty Weekend. And I have to give a shout-out to two films that are out. Um, Safer at Home, writer-director Will Wernick. He previously did uh, Escape Room, No Escape. He is, I love Safer at Home. It was just released on February 22nd on the digital and VOD platforms. And it is, it takes a look, it's a narrative feature, shot, Totally during the pandemic. He started it last summer. The entire film was done during lockdown. And it's best friends again. And But they're two years into the pandemic. Oh, wait. We're, we're in our second year now, too. Okay. Um, but they decide they're going to... And they still cannot get together. So they are having a Zoom birthday celebration that originally should have been in Vegas. Uh, and what happens on a Zoom party does not stay on a Zoom party. And it turns into a chilling, chilling night and raises the question, are you really safer at home? Uh, so it is a wonderful film. I love it. Uh, very cinematic and wonderful casting. The editing is rapier. Uh, and my interview with Will is actually done. It's sitting in my computer when I get home tonight. It is going to be up live online on BehindTheLensOnline.net. Uh, another gr- another dark film to see is Sun. Sun, it is a woman with a child with a mysterious illness. Emil Hirsch, it is one of his best performances 
in years. He turns on a dime. You don't see it coming. Uh, it's written and directed by Ivan Kavanaugh, and it is it will have your mind reeling. Uh, Ivan's my interview with my exclusive with Ivan will be up this week as well. But that is all the time we have for today. Next week is a full full house here at Behind the Lens. But until then, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Mm-hmm.